0: I'll be reading from the ESV. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Good morning. It is so great to finally be here. It's been a long time coming. And I'm just glad to finally be with the Katie Church, just to be a fellow laborer with all of you. Um, It's it's just meant so much to me, the kindness that I've already been shown, and just the open arms with which I've been welcomed. I would be remiss for for not saying thank you if you notice at my car, there's only one busted headlight lens and that's the one from last year. And I'm pretty certain that that's because Kyle was driving the whole way and not me. So big thanks to him for getting me here safely and with no deer inflicted casualties to market either. I'm just, I'm just so appreciative of, of him and for all the work that's been done in getting things figured out for my apartment. And I just have had so many questions coming into all of this uh, that have just been so, um, that have just been so generously and patiently answered by all of you. And so I just can't thank you all enough for the work that, you all, that you've all continually done in my life that makes me feel so loved. As I was thinking about this topic, follow Jesus first, obviously it's common to try and introduce a topic with some kind of an analogy or an allegory. Uh, but the more I was trying to do that, the more I realized that that's not really possible in a solid way here. I could use an example of, oh, well, a, a son was told by his father to go take out the trash, and he said he had something to do first. Or a boss told an employee to do something, but he said he had something to do first. But those examples just pale in comparison. And while I understand the point of an allegory is to symbolize something of greater importance, I'm nonetheless reminded that what we're talking about today is something that is not easily allegorized. It's not something that I feel like anyone but Jesus can successfully do, and he did multiple times. I am not he, and so I'm put in this position of thinking that this topic ought to just stand on its own. One of the things that becomes most apparent when you read the Gospel of Luke especially is how immediately people would would choose to follow him. There are a variety of times where Jesus comes up to a group of people. We see this with the early disciples. He comes to them, he preaches to them, and immediately they drop everything and they go to follow him. And we see that a considerable amount of times. But there are other times in which that's simply not the case. There are times in which Jesus asks for someone's full allegiance and full commitment, and the person in question, the recipient of that of that. Um, of that idea just doesn't take it in. We can tell that that person is not willing to fully commit, whether it be for earthly obligations of some kind, whether it be out of fear, whatever the reason, Jesus asked someone to follow him wholeheartedly and they're just not always able to do that. This story that we're going to be reading today from Luke 9 verses 57 through 62, this is the exact idea that is so built in to this passage. The idea of following Jesus first above all other people, above all other things, traditions, customs, you name it, is so prevalent within this passage that as I read it from my general Bible study a while ago, I just couldn't help but think that this needed to be the topic of today's lesson. So if you'll go with me over to Luke 9, we're going to read this passage one more time and then we'll just start making some observations from it. We can observe that this text immediately follows the Samaritans' negative response to Jesus. Um, We see in verse 52 that these disciples went ahead of him to try and make preparations for him, and that just didn't fly all that well, potentially because his face was still set towards Jerusalem, as verse 51 shows us. But this also comes after Jesus rebukes the disciples for their harsh attitudes towards the Samaritans. And so uh, let me preface this study by saying this. I don't want to be guilty of harshly judging any of the individuals in this story. I don't want to be the one that Jesus would turn to and rebuke. And so while I look at these individuals and I certainly see that they fell short of the calling of commitment that God wants us all to have for him, I likewise am reminded that I ought to do this in a gentle and understanding way. Jesus seems to again be on his way to Jerusalem here, and as he's passing along, there are three different conversations that he has with people who would be his disciples, but have other things going on. So let's see how this all takes place. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. For the kingdom of God. I think it's evident that Jesus in this passage tells three potential yet preoccupied disciples that they must first commit to his kingdom before anything else. And I think based on that fact, God wants us to understand that following Jesus must come before any earthly obligation, no matter to what or to whom it's tied. I think what we specifically learn here is that there are three earthly matters that are mentioned here, over which Jesus must take precedence. Three earthly matters over which Jesus must take precedence. What are those three? Well, I think his first conversation in verses 57 through 58 shows that Jesus has to take precedence over our comforts. Over our comforts, Jesus must take precedence. From verses 59 through 60, we see that Jesus must take precedence. He must stand above even our customs. We certainly understand that there are some customs that are matters of faith. There are customs that come from our New Testament law, but there are also customs that just come from our earthly traditions. It's over those customs that Jesus must stand above. And from verses 61 through 62, we learn that Jesus must come even before our connections even before our connections. I, I recognize that companions could have been a better word there, but I don't think companions really is a word that captures the depth and the weight of what that, of, that, of what that bond looks like for these people. These individuals are being left behind. And so we understand comforts, customs, and connections are these three earthly matters over which Jesus must stand. And so when we start in verse 57 into 58... We see this individual, we see from the parallel account in Matthew 8 that this individual was a scribe. He comes up to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. It's a tall order. Now, one thing that I should, that I'd be remiss for mentioning here is, once again, Jesus was planning on staying with the Samaritans that night. That's very evident, even when we look at his response to the scribe in verse 58, Why would he mention he has nowhere to lay his head? Well, that was seemingly what was on his mind at the time. But we're faced with a hard question here. Does this in any way address the scribe's statement? I mean, the scribe didn't explicitly mention anything about a place of dwelling that night. And yet what I think we understand from Luke 5 and verse 22 is that Jesus can perceive the hearts and thoughts of people to whom he was speaking we recognize that Jesus might already be understanding that this scribe potentially has some misconceptions, may have some wrong ideas of what exactly following Christ will look like. Let's note the fact that these early disciples of Jesus didn't always have guarantees of where they would stay, where they would go. As they were constantly moving from village to village and and where they would stay was basically predicated on who would accept them or not. Jesus even gives these people instructions of what to do when they weren't welcomed. And why give a warning where there is no danger? Why give a warning when there is no possibility of something occurring? Well, what we understand is that there was a danger of these people being ignored and their message being ignored. And as such, Jesus warns them in advance. What we recognize is that these animals, the fox and the bird, by their own design fashion their own dwelling places. And yet the Son of Man is not able to do that. It's almost by design, the Son of Man is not able to have a consistent dwelling. He's not able to have these consistent interpersonal relationships like people who don't care about the truth. When I think about, for instance, Isaiah 53 and verse 3, I think about the fact that we esteemed him not. We didn't really count him as anything special, we didn't, we didn't note that this is truly the Son of God. Uh, there are so many individuals in the first century who heard what Jesus had to say and basically just wrote him off. We see it numerous times, the Pharisees and other religious leaders were just seeking ways to kill him, seeking ways to make him stumble over his words. I think what can happen, though, is that we may look at a passage like Isaiah 53 and verse 3 and come to believe that 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 is something that's reserved for the Messiah. And certainly in that passage, I'm not going to deny that within this messianic context it certainly is. What does 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12 tell us? Does it tell us that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be loved and adored by everyone? Does it tell us that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be be favored by all people? No, it instead says that they will be persecuted. If we are doing our best to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. Once again, why give a warning where there is no danger? There is danger in it. And yet, here's what I learned from this first conversation that Jesus has in this passage. I learned that following Jesus wherever he goes often means to follow him to discomfort. It often means to follow him to uncomfortable physical and interpersonal situations. It means that where I'm even going to stay at times may not be certain and that I have to put my priority in following Christ even above that. Many of us, myself included, are very, very blessed to be able to have the dwelling places that we do, we're able to lie our heads down at night on our pillows and be able to just, to just praise God for how awesome it is to have somewhere consistent to be. But for those followers of Christ who don't have that, is their faith any less valid? Are we preaching some kind of a prosperity gospel that says that their faith is, is necessarily contingent upon how much they have and where they stay? Absolutely not what I learned from Jesus here is not that it's sinful to have comfort, but that if our goal in following Jesus is to have consistent physical and interpersonal comfort, we've gone to the wrong guy. Let me be clear here. Jesus does promise comfort, but the greatest comfort of all is found in him, and that greatest comfort is not always based in physical material things. And I say it's not always based on physical things. Frankly, it's not at all contingent upon physical things. Jesus does indeed care about our physical well-being, and yet I'm likewise reminded that the primary goal is that we go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So often in Luke chapter 9, we see this emphasis on go proclaim the kingdom of God, but also heal people. So again, I, I recognize that there is certainly a relationship, but if we're following him to discomfort, that means that we can have inconsistent acceptance from people. That means that our dwelling can be inconsistent. It can mean interpersonal problems. What we recognize is that following him does necessarily mean to to trust him in all that we do. And so once again, does does this response directly answer the scribe? Well, I think that if. I'm an, if I were an individual who could read and perceive the hearts of individuals like Jesus could, I think what I would definitely understand is that this scribe must have just had the wrong idea. But that leads into a second conversation that Jesus has. In verses 59 through 60, another individual comes up. To another he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Wow, Jesus, that's so harsh. Or is it? I want us to note that this man asked to first bury his father. There are two customs that are in question here. Number one, there's this cultural practice of mourning and of burial. What does that look like in the first century? And second, there's this idea of familial honor. What does familial honor look like in the first century? Now, we recognize that mourning periods lasted for a great deal of time. Moses and Aaron were each mourned for 30 days respectively. We know that that Jacob was mourned for at least seven days. And so formally, mourning and burial were much longer than just what a single day could provide. And there was a ceremonial aspect to it. In Mark 5 and verse 38, we see this weeping and loud wailing that seems to be a showing of that ceremonial proceeding of mourning. But is Jesus being insensitive here? Is he seeing this person who did very clearly call him Lord and saying that his faith is invalid? Well, I think we have three specific reasons here why we can know that Jesus was not being insensitive. Let's first note that God was the one who authored the laws of familial honor, right? In Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 2, Paul calls us back to Deuteronomy 5, verse 16 to honor one's father and mother because it's the first commandment with a promise, right? We recognize that God is the one who said, do this, honor your father and mother, respect them, treat them with that dignity and that respect. But to balance and perhaps limit that, God also makes it clear that, we're, that we are to place him before even our parents. Look at Luke 12 and verse 53 for a moment. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. How much more plain can it potentially be? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 27, mainly verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what does that word hate there mean? We're talking about a lesser love. It's to say that when people look at the way that I love and honor God, they should certainly see that I respect and love my parents, but to such a lesser degree, than what I give God. We recognize that yes, God authored the laws of familial honor, but he also placed limitations on it. But here's the second important note here, I think. We do see people in the Old Testament mourning. We even see Leviticus chapter 10 that God commands the Israelites, not Moses and Aaron though, he commands the Israelites to mourn. But do we have any specific guidelines, in Old Testament scripture of how exactly mourning was done? Well, not really. A lot of these formal laws of the days and the specifications were given by rabbinical literature. This is a, this is a Jewish cultural concept. And so we have to recognize as well that this idea of I have to go bury my father first, this is not a... God-given idea. This is a culturally given idea. And though that certainly seems crazy to us, like, why would you not go and bury your father first? If Jesus comes and asks for your total allegiance, you ought to give it to him, no matter what stands before you. The point is that Jesus has to come first. I think about Jesus' answer here, but as for you, when he starts with that, that's the same but as for you that we find in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5. When Paul gives all of these charges to his young evangelist friend Timothy and says, the world around you is going to do all of this, but as for you, do this. That's the same force here. It's a strong contrasting, it's a a resolute charge to the person who would be an evangelist. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet before that, we're faced with another question. What does this phrase, leave the dead to bury their own dead, mean? Well, I certainly think that there are some translations that can overstep this a little bit. Um, There's one in particular I'm thinking that says, leave the spiritually dead to bury their own dead. That word is just simply not found. And yet at the same time, I would be wrong for not recognizing that there is some kind of a connection here. We recognize in John 11 that Jesus makes this promise that he is the resurrection and the life. John 11 in verse 25. And there are people in the first century who would choose to believe that. And people who would choose to not believe that people who would choose to submit to that fact, people who would remain ignorant or willfully ignorant to that fact, right? Those who would choose to not respect that fact would remain in this perpetual mourning. And when I think about this third reason why I know Jesus wasn't being insensitive, I think about what happens 10 verses later in John 11. I think about the fact that Jesus wept and I believe those tears are multifaceted and I believe that among the reasons why those tears were shed, there was an outpouring of empathy for those individuals who were mourning Lazarus that day. I firmly believe that if anyone understands the idea of mourning a loved one, I think Jesus would. What I want us to recognize is that Jesus gives us new customs. Jesus gives us new ideas. And so following Jesus means to, sure, lament the physically lost, but it also means to preach to save the spiritually lost. It means to lament the physically lost while preaching to save the spiritually lost. It's not an either or, it's a both end we have to be convinced that he is the resurrection and the life while those unconvinced choose to remain in, again, perpetual mourning. It's what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, right? We don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be unaware about those who are asleep. So that you don't grieve as those without hope. Jesus is not condemning mourning here. But he's saying, you have hope. You're able to have the ability to move on. At some point, you can get up and go, while many others don't. But when Jesus stands before you and gives you a charge, you have to immediately follow it, even if it means the familial or cultural custom can't be followed exactly in that moment. There's one final conversation that Jesus has in this passage, though. When we go to verses 61 through 62, we see the idea that Jesus must come before our connections as well. Like the previous man's request to bury his father, can we note the fact that this man asked to first bid farewell to those at his home? I think the issue is much less about the request in of itself and more the placement of it. In both this conversation and the conversation prior about our customs, what we quickly learn is that these individuals thought they could first do what they needed to do before following Jesus. And that is just not the case. The inherent issue here is that Jesus is not being placed as first. And again, these are completely reasonable requests these people are making, but there's, there's a... There's still a placement issue. There's a priority issue. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. We recognize that this individual also calls Jesus Lord. He says, Again, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit or is suitable for the kingdom of God. Though this man calls him Lord, he has a higher priority. The idea here that I want us to, to recognize is that while it is completely okay for us to have our earthly connections, Jesus quickly becomes our greatest connection. He's the connection to whom we never have to say goodbye. And while our relationships are indeed important, knowing the Holy One of God puts those relationships in perspective, don't doesn't it? I think about a passage like John 15 and verse 14. You are my friends if you do as I've commanded you. Luke 8 and verse 21 in the parallel passage in Matthew, these are my mother and my brothers, those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those who do the will of my Father are my mother and my brothers. I'm not trying to misapply these or make them say things they aren't saying, but while we can certainly have friends who are outside of the body and we seek to try and bring them into it, we have to also recognize that according to Jesus, there is a depth. There is a difference in the relationships we are able to have with those people outside of the body of Christ and with those who are. That's hard. I have so many family and friends, for instance, who who I know there's so much that I want to show them, that I want to teach them the way more accurately, and yet that's just not always possible, right? I understand that committing to follow Jesus will make a lot of relationships look different. I understand that choosing to follow Jesus will mean that there are certain conversations that are easier to have than others. Following Jesus will result in some conversations just not being able to happen anymore. Trust me, it's hard. I know that it's difficult, but I promise you, and more importantly, God promises you that it is so overwhelmingly worth it. But what do we mean by this phrase, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back? I think when I think about that word end, I'm tending to think of it as like a, okay, chronologically, this is what this person is doing. He's working, and then after a while, he looks back to what he has. And I'm not denying that that could certainly be true, but I do think grammatically, this end is serving a different purpose. This is saying this person is being double-minded. They're looking back and forth. They're wanting to commit to the work of the kingdom while they're also wanting to look back to the work that their friends and their families want them to do outside of the body. But here's what we learn. Following Jesus in the labor of discipleship means to do so without double-mindedness. It means to do so in a single-minded fashion that is completely set on the course of following him. When I think about John chapter 6, uh, there are a lot of people who left Jesus after after he said some challenging things. He looks at his disciples and he says, well, are you going to go too? And Peter says this remarkable phrase, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And if I come face to face with the Holy One of God, what do my other relationships look like? When When I pledge my full commitment to Christ... Every other commitment that I have seems so minuscule by comparison. And yes, those commitments do indeed exist. But they, none of them hold a candle to what I have in Christ. No other person can fulfill you, satisfy you, nurture you in the way that Jesus can and will. As we're thinking about this passage, I want us to recognize that counting the cost is very important. You'll see on the bottom of your note sheet, I, I put on there Luke chapter 14 and verse 33, and I think it's very fitting to help us conclude. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I know that the phrase all or nothing is a cliche, and I know that there's you know, all these different um, Hyperbole based meanings for that, but when it comes to following Christ, it really is all or nothing. There really is no if, end, or but. That, that's it. Follow Christ or do not. Many claim to want to follow Jesus, but few understand the weight of such a commitment. An uncommitted disciple is no better than he who does not pledge to be a disciple at all. An uncommitted disciple is no better. We have to count the cost, and yet at some point, there has to just be a decision made. You can have all the conversations in the world. You can do all the pre-plan. You can say, I need this person to be here for this. But at some point, when will you just tell Jesus yes? When will that happen? To take up our cross means to die to ourselves, but it also means in a very real way to die to our past. To be born again means to have our focus realigned. It means that we prioritize these matters of how we've been reborn in Christ rather than how we were physically born. And I'm not talking about baptismal regeneration there. I'm not talking about this type of idea that your mind just becomes completely reformed and refashioned after you're cleansed. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about a realigned focus. I'm talking about prioritizing heavenly matters over earthly, fleshly, carnal matters. And that's all a choice that we make every single day. And we can choose to either prioritize the spirit or prioritize the flesh. That's up to us. But what I'm urging us to do is to consider how much better it is to follow Jesus. In order to truly be a disciple of Christ, there is no person, no tradition, no culture that can come before him. There is in no way any comfort any custom any connection that can come before him but i'm i'm haunted by this passage in a way and though this thought is not directly inseparably linked to the context of this passage i'm i'm haunted by this idea that there are both positive and negative things that we can end up prioritizing over christ right There are times when my prayers, and I'm sure I'm not alone, may not seem all that befitting to the kingdom of God. What do our prayers sound like? What do our lives sound like? I will follow you, Lord, but first I need this promotion. I will follow you, Lord, but first I need my children to succeed. I will follow you, Lord, but first I need to know that my erring friends and family are going to be okay. I will follow you, Lord, but first I need to indulge in this sin one last time. I will follow you, Lord, but first I need to be satisfied one last time. Do you see the problem here? Our hesitation often comes from a misaligned understanding of what our needs truly should be. And let me just say, a misaligned focus is not something that can be weaned off of. It's something that needs to be disposed of. We must follow Jesus immediately. When among our list of prior needs will Jesus finally be at the top of our list? When among our list of all these things we have to do, will following Jesus finally take the first spot? When will that happen? If you're here this morning and you've been a baptized believer and yet you're realizing that maybe you haven't allowed Jesus to take precedence over everything else, let us pray for you. If you're here this morning and maybe this is the first time you're hearing about Jesus Christ, you're hearing about his sacrifice for all of us and how he brings us all into a kingdom, if only we would believe and obey him, won't you come? If you have any need that we, can, that we as the Katy Church can provide for you, if there's anything that we can do to take care of you, please let us know. And please don't wait to follow Jesus first as we stand and sing.